So I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. And we are going to be in Matthew 1, the first book, and we're going to start at the first verse and read through verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and the husband Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, fourteen generations. The word of God for the people of God. That was impressive. <laughs> wow. Um, well, good morning. My name is Jay O'Brien. I'm not the evil twin brother of Jay. I, I am Jay. I shaved my beard. If you're new here, that's what the joke means. Um, and uh, I shaved my beard. And I'm not trying, you know, when you don't have a beard, you know, some people... Think, I think there's a uh, study, like re- scientific research kind of thing, where uh, a certain percentage of people and women think men with a beard are more masculine. And so I'm not, my voice, I'm not trying to deepen my voice because I don't have a beard now, I have a cold. So that's kind of the, the why my voice might sound a little raspy. I'm not trying to overcompensate. <laughs> well, we're in the book of Matthew and starting a series there that we'll be exploring. A few years ago, in the New York Times, David Eagleman wrote a review of a book called The Storytelling Animal, a very interesting book. I highly recommend it, written by Jonathan Gottskull. And in, it, in the review of the book, uh, Eagleman, he says, Eagleman, he says, we love a good story. Narrative is stitched intrinsically into the fabric of human psychology. 
But why? Is it all just fun and games? Or does storytelling serve a biological function? And he goes on to describe in detail the nature of story and how it shapes our lives. How we interpret life through the lens of story, of of reality played out before us. And if you have any connection to children, you know this is true. If you want to bore a child to death, just tell them information or facts about life. But if you want to wow them to life, include princes and princesses and, and, and characters. We're hardwired to interpret life through the lens of story. Part of being a human is the longing to see the truths of life played out before us. Well, the number one genre of the Bible is narrative. It is story. It is recordings of how God has worked in human history, in life. And this, Sunday, or this morning, we're beginning an exploration of the story of Jesus. And we're going to be in this for, for a while, looking at the life of Christ through the lens of Matthew, this man who knew Jesus personally and who followed him and who recorded events of his life because he wanted the story of Jesus and what he was about to, to, uh, to change people's lives. And what Matthew does in recording the story of Jesus is he presents it in two forms that we're going to be looking at. First, he records the events of Jesus' life, from the birth to his death and resurrection and to the launching of the church. Matthew records events of Jesus' life. And so we're going to take the next several weeks from now all the way to Easter, looking at the events of Christ, of him as king in Matthew, how Matthew presents him, the king, the kingship of Christ, his life and his story. And then we're going to come back because Matthew, he presents these five discourse sections, these five parts in the gospel where he looks specifically at the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus teaches about what the kingdom of God is like. And so we're going to look at Jesus, the story of Jesus. Jesus says, king and the kingdom that he invites us into. So this morning we begin the story of Jesus, the story of his king. And and of course, in doing this, we're not just wanting to learn facts about Jesus as if just being a bit more educated about his story is in some way important. I mean, it's interesting, right? But Matthew, he's not recording events about Jesus as just some bystander recording some interesting things. He has, in, he has an intention. Everything he writes, he's writing with purpose because his life has been changed. And that's what I want to invite you into in these next several weeks and months to consider the story of Jesus and how it can shape the story of your life. Now, many of us, we've heard some of these before. If you've grown up in the church, much of this will be new in some ways. And just like any story that we hear over and over again, you can just become kind of ambivalent, ambivalent to it. Is ambivalent a word? ambivalent. <laughs> heard the story. We've heard the story of his birth. Okay, next. Heard the story of the cross. What are we doing for lunch? <laughs> heard the story of the resurrection. We can become so familiar with the stories that we miss the power 
that they can bring into our life. And so wherever you're at this morning, whether you're, you stepped foot in a church for the first time and this is all new, or you're prone to just be callous and yawn and move on wherever you're at, I want to invite you in this season to consider, to really wrestle with who Jesus is and the implications that it can have on your life. And that may, may mean, that may mean there might be some here at the end of this, after, at the end of honest exploration, maybe you come to the belief and conviction that Jesus isn't really for you. Maybe you come at the end of this and you despise Jesus. Maybe at the end of this, you're awakened in new, fresh ways to follow him, to make him the center of your life. But my hope, whatever it is, you be willing to wrestle and be honest. Because Jesus, when we understand his kingship, you can't just yawn. You can't just be ambivalent. When you press into who he is, it will move you in one way, in one direction or the other. My hope is for you personally and for us as a church is that it will do, do that. And so this morning we begin the story of Jesus and what it means for the story of our life. And you might be thinking, a genealogy? What? A list of names? What can this have to do with my story? A lot. This morning, I want to show two things. How this genealogy informs and shapes our perspective of the human story and the story of Jesus. The story of humanity and the story of who Matthew labels the Christ. The story of people and the story of God's Son. First, how does this shape our perspective of the story of humanity? We see, we're reminded here in a genealogy that the story of humanity is a generational story. People tied together through generations. And this reminds us that for our stories, that we have been shaped by the past and will shape the future. There is a generational story that we are all a part of. Matthew and Luke, they prioritize the genealogy of Jesus and and one of the things when we come across this kind of text is we're reminded of the distance between us and the author. Because we don't think in terms of genealogies today. This feels fairly foreign. Maybe, maybe you've recently uh, got excited about Ancestry.com and you're looking up your family tree and that's all interesting. But this is not common language. Probably your parents may not have sat you down and recounted over and over and over again your family lineage and your genealogy because we like to think of ourselves and understand who we are, not through the lens of who we're connected to in the past or even necessarily into the future, but our own individual selves. We want to break free from our genealogy. And so we come across this and we don't quite know what to make of it. But one of the things... Uh, ancient cultures had a strong appreciation for their past. They understood that who they were in their present life didn't just happen by circumstance, but who they are and who they were and their views of the world were shaped by their ancestors, by the people before them. 
And we would be wise to remember this. None of us are here today. None of us have convictions about the world detached from the stories of people's lives who have gone before us. Our story has been shaped by the past, and it is shaping the future. Let's be cautious about our contemporary snobbery that wants to look down on everything that went before us and to see ourselves as more enlightened than those before us. We've all been shaped by the past and will shape the future. You know, one of the realities of this is for us as a younger church, there's a temptation as a church to just think of ourselves with how we're different from everyone before and to not recognize the the gospel legacies that we want to continue. We've all been shaped by the past and we will shape the future. There's a generational story that we're all connected to. Also, we're reminded in a genealogy of we're all a part of a story of blessing and brokenness. There is life and death. There is joy and pain. In fact, in Genesis chapter 5 on a genealogy, over and over it will repeat, such and such a person fathered someone and then they died. As if like, you would have not realized that happened. It's like Jacob fathered uh, someone and then he died. And what the authors are doing is they're reminding us that there is, in the human story, pain, brokenness, and joy, life. There is blessing. There is new life in our story. You know, one of the interesting things that I got to experience when Megan was pregnant was birthing classes. Have you ever been to a birthing class? They're really interesting. Uh, In ours, there was one, one particular class where we're getting together with strangers, people we don't know, all learning this interesting information about birth. And, and then there came the point where we were going to practice. And so the lady leading the class, uh, she dimmed the lights and started to play new age piano music. Now for me, new age piano music, that's like my safe place. You know, so I'm happy and I'm just relaxed and thinking, this is great. So I'm closing my eyes and then I start hearing some joker laughing. And it's Megan, of course. You know, Megan, everyone's trying to get this, to this peaceful place, imagining giving birth, and Megan's giggling. And I'm looking at her like, you're ruining this for everyone. And, you know, people could hear her because she's, you know, she's laughing. She just thought it was funny. And so, you, you know, you practice as much as you can the concept of birth. But then there's the part of the birthing class where you go and you see the nursery. And, of course, at that moment, everyone looks, and you're looking at these babies, these children, the, the blessing of, of people created in the image of God. In our story, there is the joy of new life, blessing. But of course, there is the story of pain, the story of death. In the hospital, it's not just, a hospital is not just a place for deliveries. There is also the pain of suffering, 
death, cancer, bad news, news people didn't want to hear, weren't expecting. This is the human story. The story of life and the story of death. The story of joy and the story of pain. We're all connected to this story. It is a part of all of our lives. When you hold your child, if you even have that opportunity, you know you're holding someone who one day will die. This is the human story. Emily Dickinson, the American poet, she sums up this feeling of death and pain in a number of poems, and one in particular called All But Death Can Be Adjusted. She says, All but death can be adjusted, dynasties repaired, systems settled in their sockets, citadels dissolved, wastes of lives resound with colors by succeeding springs, death unto itself, the exception, is exempt from change. Everything but death can be adjusted, a sobering reminder that all of us are connected to this human story of life and death. Also, our stories, the human story, reveals our spiritual longing, our longing for hope and redemption. The human story is not marked just by people who are born, eat, sleep, procreate, and die. In the midst of all of it, through the joys and pains, there's longing, longing. It is why we are storytelling animals. Because we want to find meaning. We want to find meaning, even in the pain. It is too much to bear the coldness of life to think that it is just chaos. No, we were created as spiritual beings to find meaning. That is why we tell stories. We are people of hope. We look at the pain, we look at the suffering, and we do not just say, oh well, well, is the way it is. Now maybe we have to force ourselves to come to that because we can't grasp, measure the sadness, the despair of looking at just a cold, godless, hopeless world can bring. No. In the human spirit is this desire for redemption. It is why we have art. It is why we long for beauty. It is why we have music and literature to awaken our spirit. There must be more. There must be more. In the genealogy, each of these names, you know, we read them and we, we can kind of giggle, you know. Uh, Abijah, not a name we'd choose. You know, this isn't a good list of the names you'd choose for a kid today. You kind of look, you're reminded of the distance between us and them. But each of these people was a person, living, breathing person. Like you and me, with hopes, aspirations, desires, and in fact, as Israelites would have had the longing, the hope that one day, one day God would send the Messiah, the king to right the wrongs of the world. Our story is a story of 
hope. And it is in that story that Jesus comes. Jesus enters into the human story. And Matthew wants us to see this. He wants us to know who Jesus is and why he is coming. He's very intentional. He sets this whole genealogy up because he wants you and me, he wants the original audience to know that Jesus was not just some ordinary human being, but he came with incredible purpose. First, we see in the Jesus story that Jesus is the promised divine king. Jesus is the one the world has been waiting for. There's a number of identities that come out of this genealogy that we we must consider. First, Matthew begins the first statement, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it literally reads, uh, Biblos Genesos Hisu Christu, which means the record of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. The genesis. He's just like John when he wrote his gospel and he begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. And his audience would have said, would have read that and understood this is connected to creation. God himself. Matthew opens by connecting Jesus to the genesis of God, the creative work of God. We see that Jesus is connected to creation. We also see that Jesus is the son of Abraham. This is why Matthew begins this genealogy with Abraham. He wants the audience to know that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Jewish hope. He connects him to David. Jesus is the son of David, the, the king, the Messiah, who has come to restore God's people. And also, Jesus is the son of the Gentiles. It is why Matthew includes in here four non-Jewish people. He's wanting from the very beginning to show that Jesus isn't just the hope of of the Israelites, but Jesus is the hope of the world. Here's how one commentary put it. R.T. France, in commenting on this, he says, By evoking great heroes of the past, like David and Josiah, Matthew points his readers to the ultimate hero to whom all other stories pointed. For Matthew and his circle of Jewish Christians, Jesus was not an afterthought to Judaism, a distinct and unexpected addition to God's plan in the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus was the goal to which Israel's lovingly remembered history pointed. It all pointed to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of the Gentiles, the savior of the world. Jesus is the son of God. The apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, a very important early Christian text. He says this, the passage will be on the screen. Paul in Ephesians, writing to the Christians in Philippi, he says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul, Matthew, what they want to make very clear, Jesus is divine. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, what do you do with that? You can't just, if someone shows up and they say, I'm God, you uh, should be skeptical. (laughs) Uh, You don't make that person a leader. You don't follow that person. You don't have a lot of respect for them. You say, you need some help. You, you, you just don't say, oh, and, and then uh, John said he was God, and, uh, you know, that happened. And then we, we went on into this. No, you, you're, you're troubled when someone claims to be divine. You can't just look at Jesus and hear this news and then just move on as if, well, you know, whatever. On the one hand, you know, one response to Jesus as the Son of God, you need to either run in fear or hate him. Next week, we'll look at King Herod's response. King Herod It was a very justifiable response. He was king. People show up and they say, we heard the king was born. And Herod's like, okay, this is a problem. We need to get rid of this threat to my throne. If Jesus claims to be the son of God, he's not. We don't respect him. Another response today that people have to Jesus being the Son of God is to deny that he really even claimed to be the Son of God. Maybe you've heard this today. In fact, if you take a New Testament class at your college, probably this is what you will be taught, that Jesus, he actually didn't claim to be the Son of God. Jesus and his first followers, they didn't believe this. They Eventually, it was fabricated. Christians down the line added this concept But Jesus himself didn't teach that he was the Son of God, and the first Christians didn't believe it. This is one way we can move past this idea that he's the Son of God, by denying that he ever even claimed it. That's a problem for a number of reasons, one of which has to do with the passage we just read in Philippians, because Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul about 20 years after the life of Christ. And one of the things that it says, uh, scholars will uh, know today, that what, he ha- what we have here in verses 6 through 11 is one of the first Christian hymns. This was a creed. This would have been truths that would have been recited by Christians about Jesus. Now, how Paul writing a few decades after the life of Jesus to Christians far removed from Jerusalem, commenting on their early hymn, their early core convictions about Jesus, he points to the deity of Christ, the sonship of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. You can deny it, but he claimed it. You can respond in anger, or you can respond in worship. You can respond by bowing the knee. And one of the reasons that I personally, even though I struggle, even though there's a little King Herod in me that wants to get angry, 
why I personally bow the knee has to do with the second component of Jesus' story. And Paul outlines it in Philippians, and Matthew has it right here. And it's this, that Jesus, he enters the human story. He enters in the incarnation, that God became human, that Jesus enters the human story to bring healing and wholeness. He's not a distant God critiquing his creation. He enters into his creation to bring salvation. Now, as I read this, and I admit that sometimes I am overly shaped by my culture and I can be a cynic, I want to know why. You know, what, why the incarnation? What, why this way? And we live in a world where we want to know why. What's motivating people? A good story brings that out. It doesn't just record events that happen. It brings you into the character that you can discern their motivations. It's, one of the, it's what makes a good story. What's, it's what makes a good film. Like Infinity War. Marvel, you know, it's a movie. Infinity War. You have Thanos. Thanos wants to be a, a godlike figure. He wants, to, he wants to kill half of, hum, of the galaxy. Not just earthlings. Half of the galaxy wants to kill them all. And why would anyone want to do that? You think, like, that's just, why? Because he wants to bring balance. There's this motivation. He thinks that he can be the God. He's the one who's going to bring uh, balance by wiping out half of, of all living creatures. And then you have other characters. I mean, what makes a good story is T'Challa and Steve Rogers and Bruce Wayne, Right? And I know I mixed DC and Marvel right there, okay? So if you're upset, I understand. A good superhero, it's not just someone flying around doing impressive things. No, there's a story. There's a motivation. There's something that's shaping who they are. Why, G why, why this plan, Jesus? Paul outlines this. It's beautiful. It's so in our passage, he, says, he sets it up. He says, have this mind. Have this mind. He's saying, think this way. Be motivated this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, was found in human form. And he, look here, humbled himself. He humbled himself. To the point of death, Jesus, why this way? Because he's showing us, he's showing us the nature of God. God enters into the human story and he brings deliverance. How? By being broken. By being broken. By dying. So that all humanity can be blessed. Jesus gives up power to extend power. And this, this is the gospel. The story of Jesus. And this is a story we're invited into today. The story of Jesus continues through you and me. Jesus empowers his people to bring healing and wholeness today. And so as we enter into the season of looking at the story of Jesus... I want to invite you to consider what does it mean for you personally? You can't just 
hear this news of God becoming human, of this king who was born, and just go about your life. It'll move us in one direction or the other. What direction is God moving you toward? Let's pray. God, as we look at the story of your son, we marvel at your grace. My temptation is to use a genealogy as a resume that illustrates why I should be respected and the good people connected to my family tree, and yet you provide a genealogy with people who are broken, many of whom were racial and cultural outsiders because you are wanting to show us something. You are wanting to teach us about your nature, that you are a God who uses power to lift others up. And the ultimate expression of that is you sending your son who lived and breathed and walked in the same world we did and do, and who gave his life so that we, so that we could experience ultimate peace, the peace we've been searching for, the peace we've been hoping for, the peace that seems too good to be true. Lord, deepen that truth in our minds, our hearts, and may it be extended in our hands. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.